We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Dear Colgate, I love that you love that I love being at home. You even let me whiten my teeth from home. Because you know how I feel about getting up from my cloud couch. The Colgate Optic White LED Kit gives professional-level results in just 10 minutes a day for 10 days when used as directed. And that's why, Colgate, I want you to meet my parents. Because ever since meeting you, I've been living life to the brightest. Colgate Optic White. Find it at all major retailers. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with chess players, personalities, authors, and adult improvers about their lives, their careers, and about chess improvement. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of Perpetual Chess, Chess Books Recaptured. For anyone who has not caught one of the previous ones, the idea of this show is once a month we take a break from interviewing chess luminaries and recap a chess book. In the first month, uh, back in November, uh, with Sam Copeland of Chess.com, we talked about the life and games of, with Mikhail Tal last month. Um, we talked about Reassess Your Chess with Todd Kennedy, friend and listener of the show, um, and actuary by day, um, chess enthusiast and chess dad by night. And here we are this month to talk about another book. It's going to be a little bit different because there are no chess games in this book. 
my guest and I, who I will, my guest co-host, who I will bring in in a minute, and I decided to take a different tact and go for a chess history sort of book. The book is Bobby Fischer Goes to War by John Edmonds with David Eidenau. Um, and I think we can still get some chess improvement lessons in there, but obviously it's not going to have the same themes as reassess your chess. So as always, I welcome your feedback. If you let me know, if you think this is a welcome um, difference from straight up chess improvement, um, or if you if it's unwelcome, you can let me know politely as well. But without further ado, let's get into the book so you can actually form the judgment. So uh, my guest host today is a longtime f- a friend and listener of the show, a chess journalist, um, Chris Wainscott. Chris, how are you? Great, Ben. I'm really happy to be here. And, uh, you know, before we get started, I would like to mention that having listened to the first two episodes of this podcast, I personally felt inspired to go back and read both of those books myself. Um, of course, I was familiar with both of them being not quite so young. Um, but, you know, it was kind of nice to hear other people's take on books that I had enjoyed for quite a while. And, you know, I found it inspirational to go back and read some of the games in uh, Mikhail Tell's book and to start digging into Silman's book more like I probably should have done a long time ago. Yeah, I was in that category with Silman, hadn't given him the, haven't given it the respect it deserves. Yeah, and I think that a few people, based on what I've seen in the Facebook group, which anyone who uh, is has not uh, banished Facebook from their life is welcome to join, um, or, uh, you know, talk, hit us up on Twitter and talk about it. Chris is on Twitter as well. So anyone who is inspired to check out this book, one thing I'll say about this book, Chris, um, is I don't think it's as widely read by the chess community as the first two books. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, uh, you know, that's probably the case with a lot of books that aren't necessarily chess improvement. But I do think that there's a lot to be gained from reading books about chess history as well, especially if you're an adult improver like I am. You know, a lot of times just hearing the stories that, uh, you know, of of what, uh, you know, our heroes and idols or people that we respect uh, chessically went through will kind of give you more insight and okay while I could never put myself in the same shoes as Bobby Fischer or Boris Spassky I can certainly put myself in the position of you know trying to achieve a result and trying to put as much effort and focus into that so a lot of times reading stories like this it gives your mind a little refresher from the actual hard work of improving but it doesn't turn the process off completely. Yeah, it's a good point. And as Sam alluded to, Sam Copeland, uh, when when he uh, chimed in, you know, this is supposed to be fun. Uh, we're probably not going to be world champions, so this is another way to sort of broaden broaden your your knowledge of chess uh, and appreciate this great game. Uh, but what before we dig deeper into the game, Chris, is there any other biographical details we should nail down about you that you feel our listeners should know? Sure. I guess one way in which uh, my own biography kind of attaches me to the book is the fact that I learned to play chess when I was four years old in 1977, which was more or less the tail end of the Fisher boom in the U.S. Yes, by that point in time, he was no longer world champion. Um, but, you know, chess was still very much alive and growing in the U.S. because so many people had picked it up during the the Fisher era. So, um, you know, I've, I've been playing chess since 1977. Um, like most people, I just played casually for the first several years. I started playing in tournaments sometime uh, around 87 or 88. Um, like everyone else, I swore I was never going to stop. And then, of course, immediately I stopped as soon as I graduated high school. 
Um, I came back in 2011, just kind of a random thing where I was at my grandparents' house and my grandfather had one of my old score sheets. And I just took a look at the score sheet and was like, wow, that was really fun. Why did I ever let that go? And, you know, immediately I, I felt inspired to pick chess back up. And I haven't really looked back since. Now, I, I'm involved in the game in pretty much every level um, that you can be other than perhaps professional player. Um, I do a lot of private lessons. I run a lot of after-school programs. I organize uh, a, a large number of tournaments, both scholastic and open uh, for adults. Um, I, I am a chess journalist, as you mentioned, although these days I'm kind of more of a recovering journalist mm -hmm. since it's been a while since I've actually had any assignments that I've been working on. But, you know, in addition to that, I'm a blogger. Uh, I run my own blog. So I, I'm as involved as I possibly can be with the game. I love it. I love everything about it. And, you know, it's, it's great to see somebody like yourself who's found a way to give back to people as well um, out of a passion for the game also. Yeah, this it, doing this podcast is so much fun for me. A lot of work, but I, I basically appreciate every moment. And Chris, you're um, you're in Wisconsin, and do you, do you still have a day job in addition to all this chess work? Well, of course. I, I would, you know, how could I use all of my time for chess when I could <laughs> also work full-time? Right. No, uh, cur currently, yes. I do have a full-time job. Um, it, it's, it's in the not so exciting world of debt collection. I manage a collection agency and I spend my days listening to horror stories. And then I come home at night and I kind of just lose myself in watching TV with my wife. And then later on, once she's going to bed, I, I kind of immerse myself in the chess world. Fire up the chess. Nice. And for anyone who yep. wants more background about Chris, he was on, uh, the U S chess's podcast, one move at a time in June of 2019, and I, re I really enjoyed hearing Chris's story. Of course, we've been internet friends for a while, so I was happy to check it out, and I recommend anyone else interested do so. Uh, so getting to the book, um, so for starters, I feel like we should talk about what version we read. Chris, this was your suggestion. I actually I hadn't read the book once again, um, obviously familiar with the contours of Fisher and Spassky, but not probably not as much as I should have been, to be honest. So I went with the Kindle version, tr true to my brand. There's no chess games in this book but i still find kindle easier i mean like a lot like a lot of people listening probably i'm at the stage of my chess book collection where um i'm gonna default towards not having another book on my bookshelf unless it's like i know it's especially beautiful or it's a collector's item or something like that i just as soon have a digital especially for purposes like this where i can highlight it and then go back and read the highlights all in one go as opposed to just p flipping through it so that's the version i read uh chris what what version of the book are you using well, now you're making me wish I had gone with the Kindle version myself, um, but I actually I had a paperback that I've had for several years, um, so I just had the printed uh, the print book version. Okay, excellent. Um, and so, if we refer to any page numbers, it won't necessarily line up. But if we don't name it, uh, a specific quote, if we don't name its origins, and you want to find it and you're having trouble, you can always hit us up, and we'll we'll help you out from there. Um, so. Up next is the book Zeitgeist. I do feel like it's appropriate for this one because obviously uh, 1972, um, at this point, it's almost uh, 50 years ago that this match happened, which is crazy. Um, so a lot has changed. And this book was published in 2005, which a lot has changed since then. So just to set the stage a little bit, uh, this book, I believe, was published on March 1st, 2005. At that time, there were two world chess champions. For those of you newer to chess, chess has a bit of a, um, I don't know if I'd call it a, well, checkered, no pun intended, but a um, the 
there have been times where the organizations haven't agreed about who was the champion, most notably around that time. So at the time, uh, Rustam Kazimdanov, excuse me, was the FIDE champion, and the PCA world champion was Kramnik. The PCA had been started by Kasparov and Nigel Short in the 90s um, in order to try to like fight back against uh, FIDE's dominance. And then eventually the titles, thankfully, were reunited. But that was what was happening when this book came out. Uh, Fisher at the time, basically right when it was published, he was in Japan, but shortly thereafter was granted asylum in Iceland. So he was still alive. Uh, what else, Chris? Well, to me, it's interesting. Uh, well, actually, just to touch on the last point that you made about Fisher being in Iceland, um, I-, I found it interesting uh, to note that Spassky was at least somewhat tangentially involved uh, during that time in Bobby's life still. Um, when Bobby was being held in jail in Japan, Boris actually wrote a letter to President George W. Bush asking the American government to go easy on Fisher. Um, the other thing that I think is really interesting in terms of the zeitgeist of when the book was published is to note that at the time it was published, the number one player in the world who was still active at that time was Gary Kasparov. So, you know, at this point, it feels like Kasparov has been retired forever, but you know, as the publication date of this book shows us, it really wasn't that long ago. Yeah, yeah, it really wasn't in in the grand scheme of things. Um, and certainly the book feels very current when you read it, because, again, the only thing that's changed uh, from a Fisher-Spassky perspective is the Fisher going to Iceland and then passing away and saying a couple more crazy things <laughs> that yeah. got a lot of headlines <laughs> before he died. But most of that, most of that story had already been told. Um, so... Uh, in terms of, I always like to mention which guests recommended this book, but funny enough, um, you know, the, the prior two books, again, come up all the time in the course of my interviewing people, but this one had not been recommended. I, I think even for uh, guests of the show who read it and enjoyed it, it wouldn't come straight to mind as something to recommend because there's no chess games in this book, which we'll get to. Um, but I still think, I mean, talking about Fisher Spassky, as, as we're going to dig in in a minute, I mean, there's just so many stories that took place in conjunction with this match. I mean, it's the whole thing is just too crazy to be believed. Um, another reason that I felt that when Chris suggested it, that this was a good book to cover is that there's an audiobook version of this book. Um, and obviously, you guys aren't watching us, you're listening. So uh, if you're looking for entertainment in the car or while you're exercising or doing chores or whatever it may be, and you and this piques your interest, you can pick up the audiobook, which is not the case with a lot of chess books. Um, Chris, what else would you add about uh, why it was that you felt that you, this was when you uh, volunteered graciously to help me out with this project? This was one of the books you mentioned you might be interested in discussing well i've always been fascinated with uh the the match of the century with fisher versus spassky in 72 um but one of the things i've actually always liked about this book since the first time i I read it is that you know this is probably the world championship that had the most books written about it in fact i would imagine there's there's not even a chance it's not there were so many instant books that were published immediately after the match um, within, you know, a couple of months at the most. And so many of those things are, are caught up either purely in the Cold War aspect of the U.S. versus the USSR or, you know, how it was kind of a, a, a substitute for the Cold War or whatever the case may be. And what I've always liked about this particular book is that it was written after the fact. 
you know, it wasn't written in that same moment in time where everybody was trying to view the world through that lens. This one is actually written far enough in the rearview mirror that I think they go into a lot more details about the players as individuals and about the match as an entity rather than trying to brush everything with the, the, you know, or view everything through the lens of the Cold War. Yeah, that's a good point. And and one thing I noticed when I got through the book and went to the acknowledgments is they talk to almost everyone. I mean, you name someone mentioned in the book and they talk to them, which is pretty impressive. Um, of course, the one person they did not talk to is Bobby Fischer, but I, I don't think that that's their fault. I think it's safe to say. Um, yeah, I would have. I would imagine that's not from lack of trying. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, of course, as Chris mentioned, there are a lot of other books about Bobby, about this match. We, we could have picked one of those, but I do think this one has good distance. Um, uh, just, just for a little more context, I uh, mentioned Edward Winter last, last month, of course, uh, renowned chess historian. Um, he, he has a, a, you know, I don't know how many words, but about a five, 10 minute write up kind of synthesizing stuff you should know about the Fisher Spassky match. And he mentions that his two favorite books about uh, the Fisher Spassky match are uh, this one's in Icelandic. I assume it's Icelandic Fisher Geigen Spassky by Johansson and Olafsson Reykjavik, 1973 and Fisher world champion by Max Oive and Jan Timmen. Although he says that the reason that he likes those two books, the best is the game analysis, which again, uh, and I think by the way, about the game analysis thing, I think now more than ever, you don't need, you don't, if, if it's super famous games, like a world championship match, you don't need a book specifically to find the analysis. I mean, you can find stuff online, you can find YouTube videos, um, you can, you can collate from different sources. So, uh, but those were the books that he mentioned. So if you're looking for even more reading, those are ones you could check out. Um, as for who the authors are, um, just to give you a little background, uh, as far as I know, Chris, do you happen to know what uh, I saw that we both follow David Edmonds on Twitter? Do you know anything about his uh, his chess background? I, I really have no idea. I mean, it, it comes through in the book that he's clearly an enthusiast, but I, I've never heard anything about his particular involvement other than the work he's done here. Yeah, that was my impression as well. Sort of uh, parachuted in to discuss the chess world, but he does a really good job. Um, here's a few facts he mentions on his website, multi-award-winning presenter-producer at the BBC. He hosts a show called The Big Idea. He's written some well-known books, senior research associate at Oxford's University. Um, and John Idenow, the the co-author, um, his, his frequent collaborator and is a lawyer by training. So that gives you a little bit more information, but these guys are definitely coming from from like a journalistic background, which again, as they talk to so many people, becomes clear. Um, so Chris, uh, moving on to what level chess player this is suited for. I mean, we kind of already touched on this, but anything to add? Well, you know, I think this is a book where the level of the player doesn't matter so much. As a matter of fact, I think this book can be enjoyed by players and non-players alike. Now, having said that, for sure there are correlations between being a player and how well you're going to understand the subject matter of the book. Um, for example, I, I think tournament level players will get more out of the book because they're going to understand some terminology uh, such as open positions or Kings Indian uh, or whatever other chess specific terms might be mentioned. Okay. Yeah. And Chris, just to give context, you're, you're rated about 1800. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Yeah. And, and I agree. And the other thing I would say is, um, 
in terms of what level chess player it is, it's almost, I might even go so far as that there's sort of an inverse relation to how much you know about chess and how much you might enjoy this because um, you'll the the less experience you have, the less you'll know and the more there is to learn. And they do do a great job um, covering the, the bigger points of this match. So if you're fairly new to chess, um, you probably don't know the history as well. And I think this is uh, really good one-stop shopping in terms of uh, just just getting your feet wet and getting to know um, a good base for the Fisher-Spassky match and Fisher and Spassky generally. Um, so we're going to get into the meat of the book now, but first I am going to pause for a quick break. Guys, since we're talking Bobby Fischer on this month's chess book recap, I thought it would be a good time to bring to your attention the fact that My Great Predecessors 4 by Gary Kasparov is available on chessable.com. You can use the Move Trainer technology to remember some of Bobby Fischer's coolest moves in history. There's 587 trainable examples, and you can check it out online and hear one world champion reflect on and dissect the games of another chess legend. So go to chessable.com and check that out. Now it is back to the show. Okay, and we're back. And as we like to do, we will read the first sentence of the book. Chris, do you have it locked and loaded there? I do. Uh, As a matter of fact, if the listeners will indulge me, I'd actually like to read the first couple of paragraphs because I think they really set the stage for what this book's about. Excellent. It is five o'clock in the evening of Tuesday, 11 July, 1972. The seats filling the arena of the sports hall, the Lagerdershall, and Reykjavik's featureless leisure complex are sold out. On the platform, the world chess champion, 35-year-old Boris Vasilievich Spassky, sits alone at the chessboard. He is playing white. Precisely on the hour, the German chief arbiter, Lothar Schmid, starts the clock. Spassky picks up his queen's pawn and moves it forward two squares. The Soviet Union's king of chess has begun the defense of the title that has been his since 1969 and his countries without interruption since World War II. He glances up at the other side of the board. The expensive, low-slung black leather swivel chair specially provided for his opponent is empty. Six minutes later, the American challenger Bobby Fischer arrives. A communal sigh of relief gusts through the hall. Because of his refusal to leave New York in time for the match's opening, the first game has already been postponed and many had feared he might not appear at all. With Fisher, one can never be sure. Now a large hand reaches across the chessboard, plucks up the black king's knight, and places it on F6. In the provincial and normally tranquil Icelandic capital, what is already being called the match of the century is at last underway. Mm. Beautiful beginning. And you nailed that pronunciation of Lagardashal, Chris. That was impressive. Oh, I, I, I'm really bad with Icelandic, so I'm glad I got that one. <laughs> I mean, it sounded good to me. Obviously, I'm not like, – regular listeners will know I'm not the best source on this topic. But it sounded good to me. And, yeah, that sets the stage, although I will say hearing that paragraph, like just hearing Chris read it again, it gets me fired up. Like, boom, let's go. Let's hear the match. But that's actually not the way the book is is narrated because then they kind of dial it back and they give a lot of background. Uh, they do a little Spassky bio. They do a little Fisher bio. They kind of paint a broader um, history of what was going on with the Cold War at that point. Um, Chris, what's your take on on that sort of um, broader view? I mean, the people who are like, just get to the chess might want this book to be 100 pages shorter. Are you in that category or no? I'm definitely not in that category. I do like books that contain a lot of background 
uh, information on them. Uh, I also think that thanks to Quentin Tarantino, a lot of us are now kind of useful with narratives that jump around a little bit. Having said that, I do think that the structure of the book could have benefited by a little more editing in terms of helping the narrative flow. Um, I, I really do like, though, how deeply they went into the background. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the things I liked the most about this book is this is the only book I can really think of that I've read about the match where they really went deeply into, into Spassky's background. Now, granted, most of the books I've read about the match were written by American authors and mostly immediately after the match. Um, but these guys really took the time to give readers a sense of what it was that Spassky was bringing to the match himself. Yeah, and I have a I have a lot of love for Boris Spassky, I have to say. I've mentioned before, <laughs> of of all the people in the world that I could interview for perpetual chess, he's he's one of he would be one of my top choices, even though he's been interviewed a thousand times, so he may or may not say anything new. But I just feel like he's one of these people who he I mean he maybe didn't put his best foot forward in terms of chess quality in this match. But I mean, you, he, he seems to have this approach to life that, that one can get behind. I mean, he, you know, he enjoyed the occasional drink. He seemed to have a balanced perspective, especially for a chess world champion, especially in comparison to his opponent. Um, he was an amazing sport in this match. I mean, we'll get into some, we can't even in, in an hour long podcast, we can't even cover all the times he like bent over backwards to accommodate Fisher's kind of crazy requests. So, uh, Big shout out to Boris Spassky, basically. I, I hope he goes on the podcast for oh, you. Oh man, that would that would be something. Um, so a little bit more about the structure of the book is basically I feel like it would be um useful, Chris, to just give a one or two minute like what a so they have a big background, they do the bios. But what what would you say, or if you'd like me to say, what are the events? Like, what are the major events? Because obviously it's centered around a chess match, but there's a few things that occur that make the that build up the suspense. So I think uh, it's safe to give spoilers here. Forty seven years later, or whatever it is. So um, what uh, what happens leading up to the match, and then with the match, and the delays in the match, and all that stuff. Well, you know, one thing I thought they did a really good job of is I think that most people who are familiar, at least with the outline of this match, will know that there were a number of delays in Fisher actually making it over to Iceland. Most of those were self-imposed delays um, where he just simply didn't seem to want to go. Um, but I, I thought they did a really good job of, or that the authors did a really good job of explaining that while not dwelling on it. Um, so I guess to answer the question, the book centers on the prior to the match history of both players, followed by the challenges even just to get the match underway. Um, many people may fami be familiar with game two of the match, which had no moves whatsoever. <laughs> um and so then, of course, the challenges were to get the match restarted. Along the way, there was all kinds of drama about can can or uh, can the match be filmed or can it not be filmed? Were the contracts allowing filming rights to be sold to someone else? Uh, were they to be disregarded? Were they to be honored? So there's a lot of interesting kind of backroom drama that takes place in the book. Um, I do agree with you that it does take away from getting straight to the chess. But at the same time, I also think it gives you a better appreciation as a reader for 
what all of these various factions really had to, to go through just to make sure that this match happened. Yeah. Whether it was the organizers, whether it was, like you said, there's so many instances of Boris being a, an amazingly good sport just to make sure that he did his part to contribute to the match continuing. Um, so I, I really thought that uh, that all those little drama elements just painted a better picture. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's hard to do counterfactuals, but one thing in, in reading this book that struck me is it, it kind of seems like a miracle the match happened, you know? I mean, it was so close to going off the rails so many times and so many people stepped up. Um, again, we can't, we can't even cover them all, but, but there were funding issues, lighting issues, chair issues, you know, uh, just Fisher getting on the plane issues. I mean, just so many things. And they all, it's not one of those things where like, it seems, uh, you know, uh, manufactured. And of course there's some discussion of what were Fisher's uh, motivations for the irrational behavior, um, in various points. But I mean, I think that's just who he was, is my opinion. What do you think, Chris? No, I agree with that. You know, I, I've always heard the same type of rumors or read the same sort of innuendo that this was some sort of gamesmanship where Fisher was trying to get Spassky off balance. But, you know, a lot of people maybe don't recall that in, I believe it was 67 in the Sioux Center Zonal, um, Fisher was leading uh, by quite a large score with a few rounds left. And because of some disputes, he wound up actually walking out of that tournament and giving up his spot in what would have been the candidates. I mean, he was for sure going to qualify. And, uh, you know, so the idea that he could engage in some sort of gamesmanship that would get him desired results, I don't think that was the case. You know, yeah. I think he had already, he'd already learned from prior experience that sometimes you, you just make one demand too many, and the organizer says, no, there's the door, and feel free to leave. Yeah, and of course the fact that he never even defended his title sort of, lends credence to the argument that he really was willing to walk away. I mean, he did walk away. So, um, yeah, because you do, as Chris alluded to, you do read stuff where, like, yeah, this was some sort of grand plan to get Spassky off his game. And uh, I just, yeah, I just don't, that that I don't think is is where he was coming from. Um, Major themes of the book. So given the format of this book, I find this this harder to deconstruct and say reassess your chess because are they really themes of the book or are they themes of the match? I don't know. But certainly some topics that will come up if you read the book are the Cold War, uh, sportsmanship, as we mentioned, especially coming from the Spassky side, paranoia um, coming from both sides, uh, the pressure of the world championship, uh, the, as, as I'm sure we'll, we'll get into a little bit more um, or I hope to. I mean, the game quality in this match, for all of this match's fame, I mean, Fisher has a couple brilliant games, but there's some uh, colossal blunders in this. I mean, of course, game one, where Fisher snatches the pawn on H2 and White plays G3 and traps the bishop. And of course, many, many, uh, many buckets of ink have been spilled trying to figure out what exactly Fisher was thinking when he took that pawn. Uh, Spassky, when he plays Bishop takes a four in game five falls for basically, you know, a 16, 1700 level tactic to end the game. So, I mean, considering the, how amazing these guys were at chess, the quality of chess, um, the, the pressure I think really, really shows. So those are, I don't know if they're themes of the book or themes of the match, but they're certainly things you would, you would come across. Anything to add there, Chris? 
Um, no, I think you, I think you pretty much covered it. I, I think it's, uh, well, okay. So a book you were talking about recently on perpetual chess was the Anon files. And this book was making me think of that one quite a bit just because of the pressure cooker type situations that players find themselves in, in world championship matches. And so, you know, like you pointed out, there are some very, very basic blunders that took place in this match. And these are two of the great, you know, these are two world champions. You know, it was, it was the current world champion and the man who was about to supplant him. And yet they still made very, very basic errors, which can clearly only be attributed to the pressure of the situation. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can dig into each specific error and try to come up with an explanation. But overall, that had to had to have a lot to do with it. Um and it's funny that it's called the match of the century, but in terms of game quality, I would say it is not the match of the century. If you're going to lock your, you know, if you were going to lock yourself in a room and say, my, my goal is to get better at chess from studying one, you know, one set of games from a world championship, this definitely would not be the one. But man, if you're in it for the stories, you can't, you can't do much better than this one. Um, okay. Favorite quotes, Chris. So I like, uh, there was a bit on page 271, and again, this is in the print version, uh, specifically the paperback. Um, Art Buchwald, the humorist for the Washington Post, he published a conversation that happened between Fisher and Nixon as he was imagining it um, after Fisher had won. So he says, Nixon, hello, Bobby, this is President Nixon. I wanted to call and congratulate you on your victory in Iceland. And Bobby's response, make it short, will you? I'm tired. <laughs> Yeah. So I, you know, I can completely hear that kind of a, a rebuff happening. I mean, there's so many, there's so many anecdotes about the way that Fisher would respond to people over the years that you can completely see him blow somebody off like that. But then there was actually, there was also something that I read as an amazing bit of prose, even though it was describing a chess game. So uh, there's a description of the 13th game, and in the print book, it's page 209. And the quote is, Fisher gave up a piece, but retained, and then activated a phalanx of pawns on the wing. They marched slowly, inexorably, and menacingly up the board. And, you know, that that's a game I was already pretty familiar with, not just being somebody who's enjoyed this match, but I had interviewed uh, a Wonder Liang a few years ago, and he mentioned that game specifically as being one of his favorite games of all time. Yeah, that is a, that game is something. That game is, I mean, topsy-turvy, like, you know, very dramatic, very imbalanced, definitely one worth checking out. Um, and as for, for my favorite quotes, one thing I'll say is this is really hard. And uh, because... The, you the, like literally probably 20% of the book was highlighted for me. I'm a, I'm a, a liberal highlighter when I read and, and it was tough because there were a lot of, a lot of stuff I wanted to remember and come back to. So when I went to review and pick my favorite quotes, it wasn't easy. The other thing is similar to the life and games of Mikhail Tal. This is one where the idea of quotes and the idea of stories kind of blend together a little bit. So a lot of my favorite quotes are actually sort of stories from the book. Um, Number one is, and and again, by by going through these quotes, we'll give you a little more color on sort of all the behind the scenes drama that we can't hit every point of. But this is from the point where they're still trying to get Fisher to get on the plane. Um, and by the way, uh, 
there's a lot of potential companion pieces for Bobby Fischer Goes to War, but a lot of you may be familiar with the um, HBO doctor documentary, Bobby Fischer Against the World, um, and they interview a lot of the same people. I am Anthony Sadie, and then you get to actually see them on on camera. And, um, you know, it's uh, definitely a welcome companion, and I, I recommend that documentary. Um, so this is Paul Morphy, I mean, Paul Marshall, uh, force, force of habit there, saying Paul Morphy. Paul Marshall was Fisher's lawyer. So the backstory is this is when they're still trying to get Fisher on the plane to go to Reykjavik. The match is starting in less than a week. They don't know, is he going to come? Is he not going to come? He's still doing all this random haggling. And uh, Paul, Paul Marshall says, I received a call from Andy, who was the limousine driver taking Fisher to the airport. He had just passed over the 59th Street Bridge when I spoke to Andy and said to him, congratulations, meaning the implication being that Fisher's getting on the plane. You finally did it. He said, don't congratulate me yet. It's a little early. We both laughed and signed off. I was a happy man. I wouldn't have to see Bobby for two and a half months, I thought. I went home and my wife congratulated me. I kissed my kids for the first time in weeks. I slept well, went to the office, had a good morning and went out for lunch. I picked up a paper and saw, oh no, he hadn't gone yet. I went out for a quick drink. Um, So, that's false start number one. <laughs> just, yeah. just amazing stuff. And he actually ended up at I Am Sadie's house. And in, in the documentary, I Am Sadie speaks very memorably about how he considered it his singular job to get Fisher on that plane. So that's where the story picks up from there. Uh, quote number two um, is from Nikolai Krogius. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Chris, but I trust that you're prepared to tell us who Nikolai Krogius is. Yes, of course. Um, He was a Soviet grandmaster. He was part of Spassky's delegation. And by trade, he was a practicing psychologist. Yeah. And he wrote a book called The Psychology of Chess. I remember reading that in my teens. I would like to revisit it um, (laughs) as an adult. But uh, Karpov has done interviews subsequently. It seems like he wasn't the biggest fan of Krogius. Some people like to question um, they, they feel like Spassky didn't have the best team. I mean, the, the Soviets were reasonably generous with the number of people they sent, although not as generous as they were with Karpov in subsequent world championships. But in any event, um, Krogius was on his team. It's not entirely clear what, how much he was helping with chess uh, as opposed to psychology. But this is what he said about Fisher. He said, as a psychological type, Fisher resembles the French marshal, Messina, uh, whoever that is, who was unable to pull him. I mean... I'm sure some of you know. I don't know who was. I'll start over. A psychological type, Fisher resembles the French Marshal Messina, who was unable to pull himself together before a battle, but was transformed when the battle began. Napoleon said that Messina demonstrates his talent as a military leader, quote, only when the cannons begin to fire. So basically referring to Fisher's sort of um, fear of actually playing and the many negotiations that went on. Uh, but then once the games were on, he may be nervous. And a lot of people like Larry Evans at some point says that when Fisher won the world championship, he already thought Fisher was never going to fend his title just from being friends with him. Um, so yeah, Fisher had some, some insecurity deep down, possibly some insecurity deep down inside about defend about actually playing chess. But if he arrived at the board, he came to play, um, question i mean uh quote number three um in this one uh flashes forward 
to when the match is over. And they're kind of doing a little retrospective on Fisher's disappearance. Uh, they, they say Fisher's life testifies to the F. Scott Fitzgerald proposition that there are no second acts in American lives. Achieving, achieving his only goal destroyed his raison d'etre. Without that goal, he seemed to lose his already weak hold on reality. With nothing more to prove, fear of de- defeat prevailed over his desire to play. Fisher turned Reykjavik into a battleground, and that would be the last chess war he would ever wage. Um, and Chris, I'm, I feel like I'm giving a soliloquy here. So if you want to read my fourth quote, I couldn't resist picking four. But if you want to hop in, do you have the document? Sure. Yeah, I do. I have it right in front of me. Um, so the fourth quote comes from uh, the former champion reflecting on the fate that had awaited his successor. It will be a hard time for him. Now he feels like a god. He thinks his problems are over. He will have many friends. People will love him. History will obey him. But it is not so. In these high places, it is very cold, very lonely. Soon depression will set in. I like him. I am afraid what will happen to him now. Yeah, and that quote just blew my mind. Well, it, you know, it's interesting as a kind of as a encapsulation of Spassky as a person, right? Because first of all, there's definitely a lot of Russian fatalism in that. Of course, yeah. Right. Um, but it also... You know, if you think about the fact that Fisher was only the 11th world champion, that quote was spoken by literally one of only 10 people in the history of the world who knew the place that Fisher had just gone into. Yeah. And Spassky, you know, by outward appearances, he is not someone who you would say, like, you know, he won the world championship and then his life fell apart. Um, I mean, he, he was, you know, renowned in his later years of chess for, I mean, okay, maybe he wasn't giving his all at the chessboard. In fact, that's another thing that Karpov insinuated about this match and already, but I mean, he was known for playing tennis a lot, um, known to enjoy a drink here and there, um, so on and so forth. But he didn't, he didn't give the impression of this sort of brooding loner by any means, but that's sort of. Uh, what he describes uh, immediately after the match. So, yeah, it's uh, sh- shockingly prescient. Well, and there's there's another quote in the book, and I don't have the quote right in front of me, so I'm just going to have to ad-lib it a little bit. But after Taimanov had lost uh, 6-0 to Fisher in the first round of the candidates, he was called into uh, a meeting with various Soviet officials and essentially called out on the carpet and, you know, they, they, they stripped him of his master of sport title. They stripped him of his, of his income. They took everything away from the guy that they could take away from him. And, you know, a lot of the Soviet players were kind of, oh, yeah, you know, that's the, he got what he deserved. But Spassky said something along the lines of, you know, I wonder if they'll come for the rest of us once Fisher has beaten us all. Yeah, yeah, I remember that quote. Yeah, and Taimanov really appreciated Spassky being the only one to stand up for him, or one of the only ones. Right. And, and I mean, and as it turns out, he wasn't wrong. I mean, from what I know of the situation, Taimanov did eventually get many of those things back because Larson then got blanked 6-0, Petrosian lost handily, and Spassky got beaten pretty badly. So I, I think it just wound up being, you know, Fisher's time to shine. And what had been seen as normal operating procedure within the Soviet chess circles just kind of had to get reconfigured. Yeah. Yeah. And of course we could go on with so many more quotes, but, but we got to keep it moving. Um, 
Uh, again, if you want the whole thing, get the audio book. But this will try to we'll, this will be the uh, somewhat briefer version. So, favorite games. Chris and I decided for this since there's no games proper annotated in it. Obviously, any of the games from the match are fair games, but also a fair game as it were. But also, we felt like any any game even mentioned in the book was reasonable to select as the favorite game because these days you can just call it up on your computer and check it out. So, Chris, which game did you pick as your favorite? Uh, I picked a game that I really wish I had been more aware of its existence prior to reading this book. I picked Game 5 from Spassky and Petrosian's 1969 match. Um, it was a nice game in the semi-tourage. It looks relatively tame. It just, you know, if you take a look at the game somewhere around move 2022, it just kind of looks like it's going to peter out into a draw. And then Spassky finds this pawn sack to get a very mobile pass pawn. And he caps the game by sacking his queen, which is always a really nice finish to see. Yeah, the, the end of that game is pretty cool. Definitely definitely recommend checking that out. And I went with a lower quality game as my choice. I, I went for the history angle. Um, so I picked game three. Um, just because, again, setting the scene, Chris mentioned earlier, you know, we don't know if he's going to show up for game one. Lo and behold, he shows up. And then game two, he's arguing about uh, the cameras and the lights and all this stuff. And he doesn't even show up for game two. And then game three, we don't know if he's going to show up. And he's down to nothing. He's He lost a game where he blundered with the bishop takes h2, the aforementioned um, colossal blunder by... by uh, world champion standards and then he doesn't play the second game so but lo and behold he shows up and he it's a modern Bernoni. he's playing black he comes to fight and this is where he unveils this knight h5 move which you know we don't have to go too granular on the details of the game but basically you know he had a kingside fianchetto and white was able to take on h5 and give fisher double isolated rook pawns which of course on perpetual chess uh yevgeny Bureyev talks about the importance of breaking the rules john watson and the secrets of modern chess strategy we now know how how uh, no no so-called rule or guideline in chess is sacrosanct but back in the those days to um, allow your your kingside pawn structure to get shattered um, when your king is already castled um, and to do this on the biggest stage in the biggest moment uh, not only of Fisher's career but really in in chess history to, to to play a move like that and then the game itself is not that thrilling to be honest I mean he just he just wins um, he just it's just a clean win with black um, but mainly it's just like he shows up he comes to play, and then most importantly, he wins. He had never beaten Spassky before in a classical game. He was 100 points higher rated, but people are like, first of all, is he going to show up? Second of all, can he win? But it's like once that game happens and he wins with black, it's like, okay, now we have a match. Now now things are cooking. So that was my pick just based on the historical context. That's a good pick. Yeah. Um, so again, more beauty in the game that Chris selected, but I mean – it, that he there's no guarantees it, it wasn't preordained that fisher was going to show up um i i think it was said that lothar schmidt physically forced the two guys into the chair at some point um so yeah it's uh it's something all right favorite anecdotes chris actually i'll start with one that you just touched on um during that third game which by the way was played in a back room away from the main 
playing hall, as you had mentioned. Uh, Fisher shows up. There's some contention as to whether or not he's even going to sit down and play the game. Um, he, he gets ready to play. He says he's going to play. And then he starts bickering again about, uh, you know, the, the lighting is bad. The camera is bad. This is bad. That's bad. I don't know if I can play in these conditions. And Lothar Schmidt at some point physically grabs both players by the shoulders, pushes them down into their chairs, and, and makes sure that they start the game. So I thought that was, it's just a fascinating mental image, if nothing else. Yeah. I you mean, know, it, you, sorry, go you, ahead. Yeah, you, you have a couple of guys who are essentially hiding behind the main stage playing in a side room with an audience full of people who can't really see anything. And here's a guy who's just had enough and it's time to sit down and play. Stop the bickering. Yeah. Can you imagine that happening with Carlson and Caruana <laughs> or something like that? I, <laughs> I'd love to see it. The, I, I, might, I might pay to see it. Yeah. Just, just, unfathom, <laughs> just unfathomable to, to imagine these days. And I, again, I, I kind of had a, a hard time choosing um, uh, favorite anecdotes. But, I mean, these kind of weave together. But there, there was this guy named Chester Fox who, again, uh, chess historians will already know this, but somehow, I mean, they describe him as basically kind of a fly-by-night, one-man operation, uh, and he somehow secured the rights to be the only one who filmed this match. So first of all, Chester Fox is an amazing name. Uh, I mean, and they basically describe him as kind of a dodgy businessman, but he has these rights, um, and a lot of the fighting is about, is he going to be allowed to film it? He has a contract that says he will. He subsequently sued Fisher um, or, you know, I don't know exactly who he sued, but he sued whoever it was for not being able to film the entire thing. So there's these bit characters that you just don't see in a lot of uh, world championship matches for the most part, like Fisher's policeman friend, Sammy Paulson, who I believe subsequently wrote a book, um, plays, plays a bit part in the in the move in the, I say movie because it feels like one in the match British investment banker, Jim Slater, who uh, went again, one of the times that Fisher held up the match, it looked like it wasn't going to happen. Suddenly he was demanding more money. And this guy comes in out of nowhere, this investment banker and doubles the prize fund. So there's just all these little like extra characters that like, if you were writing a story, you couldn't write them this well. Um, So, I mean, that's probably more than one anecdote, but those are some of my favorites. And we should mention, by the way, that uh, Anthony Sadie, who is a doctor by practice, um, and I believe when I interviewed John Donaldson, who, of course, is one of the the world's leading experts on Bobby Fischer, um, he mentioned that Fischer did have what Sadie calls hyperacusis regarding sound and light. So uh, we don't want to make too much light of all these demands he was making vis-a-vis the cameras and the noise and stuff like that, because there may have been like a medical issue that um, actually really bothered him more than it would bother anyone else. But in any event, it certainly contributed, it added to the drama, whatever the reasons were it for it, it took place were for Agreed. And, you know, one of the things that I think really sets this match apart from certainly any match in recent history or probably ever is the size of the locale in which it took place and also just the nature of the uh, the inhabitants. And what I mean by that is, 
you know, first of all, this was not in a major population center. It's not like this match was taking place in Moscow or New York City or anywhere else. This was a little country with a very small population. And as a result, you get these really cool stories about how, for example, um, there was a car dealer who lived on the uh, who lived in Reykjavik. And he saw Spassky just kind of standing in his driveway out for a walk one day, uh, admiring this Range Rover that he had. And so he gives Spassky a ride and, you know, around the countryside and is kind of telling him a little bit about the history in the area and winds up lending him the car to use for the duration of the match. Um, also, I know you've been to Iceland, Ben, so maybe you're a little more familiar than I am with just the general culture of the place. But I know that they, they're really worried about being considered to have bad manners or to be seen as treating somebody poorly. So I was fascinated by this, this uh, little snippet of information in the book that locals consider it bad manners if their dog barked at a stranger. So dogs had been banned from Reykjavik since 1924. Wow, I didn't catch that, and I'm a dog person, so that disappoints me. But yeah, the <laughs> the people were very nice. I, I had uh, yeah, I I had a great time there. Highly, as I've mentioned, as Chris highlighted, I've mentioned uh, at the Reykjavik Open as we record. Uh, we're in we're in January, and I believe it's in April. Um, so anyone looking for an international chess tournament uh, to play in uh, one of these big open FIDE rated tournaments, I, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Um, based on my 2006, I believe it was trip there. Um, I'll give. Uh, we're we're running long as expected, Chris. Um, <laughs> but I I have to give one more anecdote. This is about Fisher Bowling. Um, and again, this is a quote slash anecdote. The quote tells the story. So it's by a guy named Victor Jakovich. Again, all these bit characters in in this match that you just don't encounter in say Caruana Carlson or Car or Carlson Karyakin or Anand Gelfand, or whatever it may be. Um, so Victor Djokovic, a uh, bit character who is tasked with looking out with Fisher on the Air Force Base. Um, and he, so he's the one that always goes bowling with Fisher, which along with swimming late at night is one of Fisher's favorite uh, activities to blow off steam. So he says, bowling was partly a physical exercise and partly a mental distraction. That's all it was. Bowling as a sport had no interest for, for Fisher. He would always bowl out of turn. I would bowl and his second William Labardi would bowl and Fisher would bowl and I would bowl and Fisher would stand up and if I went over and said it's not your turn Lombardi would signal me and say no no and he told me later it makes no difference it's just throwing a ball at a bunch of pins it's not real bowling here it's not a game and I remember a person at the base coming up to Fisher with the best of intentions and trying to tell him look let me show you what you're doing wrong with your hook or whatever Fisher very curtly responded look I throw this heavy ball in order to get exercise in my arm in order that I can be in better better physical shape in order that I can sleep better in order that I can play better chess that's it so I, I love that quote. I think it reveals so much about Fisher's personality. Absolutely. I mean, just throw the rules out the window, you know, <laughs> whatever, <laughs> whatever rules you may have, they, they don't apply to him. Um, and, you know, I feel like um, not not to go too deep, amateur psychologist, but he had a way of compliment, uh, compa- compartmentalizing, excuse me, his competitiveness Um you know, where there was the dichotomy between he absolutely tried to destroy everyone over on over the board, but he would try to avoid playing at times. And at 
in bowling, it, I feel like he, he had designed a construct in his mind where it was okay to do this because it wasn't a competition. If memory serves the aforementioned cop bit character, Sami Polson, um, he said that they would swim together and that when they would swim, they would race and he would let Fisher win, basically. So, yes. I, so I mean, it's just, yeah, just, just you couldn't make this stuff up. Um, okay, improvement takes takeaways, and this is the one where we may be reaching, we may not be. But Chris, what do you think? What what can we learn from this book and this match regarding how to get better at chess? Um, you know, the only thing I can really think of, which is more of a, a a cultural improvement than an individual one, is this match was really the beginning of Iceland being put on the chess map. I mean, don't get me wrong; they already had Fredrik Olofsson. He was already a world class grandmaster. But this match really seems to be the driving force that has led to Iceland having a higher percentage of GMs per capita than any other nation. Um, You know, it's everything you read, whether it's in this book or any of the other books. If you watch the documentary you were talking about, they all talk about how everywhere you could go in Reykjavik, there was just chess everywhere. Whether it was shops selling merchandise uh, that was chess themed or people playing on sets around town, you know, that really led to some sort of chess renaissance in the country. And that is really shown short of that. I don't know if this is much of an improvement takeaway in terms of chess improvement, but I really think that this, this kind of, uh, this match kind of set the tone for the rest of Spassky's life so far. Um, yes, on the one hand, it kind of made him the guy who lost to Fisher, and that's forever after the way he's going to be seen in some way, shape, or form. Um, but I think this also gave Spassky the impetus that he needed to make his break from the Soviet Union and emigrate to France in 1976. Now, he still played for the Soviet Union a little bit after that, although he did eventually switch and play in some Olympiads for France, etc., um, but I, I, I really think that it, chess improvement, not so much, but improvement on outlook of life. There's a lot of that. Yeah, of course. And obviously if you make a study of either Fisher or Spassky's games, or even despite, despite the fact that these games weren't amazing, there's still plenty to learn from them. I mean, Fisher, um, was, was certainly willing to, um, again, break some orthodoxy in terms of, uh, uh pawn structure and stuff like that. I mean, he was ahead of his time. Um, in terms of um, the way he approached the game, um, of course, his single, his like legendary single-minded uh, pursuit of chess to to his detriment, in all honesty. But but I mean, the fact that he was living and breathing chess all the time, and Spassky wasn't, definitely um, showed through in the results. But overall, I mean, if we were to rate this on a scale of how useful it is for chess improvement, I mean, it can't compare to the other books we've discussed. It can't compare to I mean, basically any book that's been named uh, on perpetual chess, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't read it. Um, what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I, I, no, I agree with that. I've always looked at books. Uh, I think I touched on this earlier. I've always looked at books like this as a really good opportunity to disengage from doing hard work on chess for a little bit, but stay engaged with the chess world. You know, sometimes you need a break from solving extremely hard puzzles. Pick up this book, read a little bit, learn a little bit about these players, learn a little bit about this era. Um, and quite frankly, just learn a little bit about a lot of these bit players that you've mentioned. They're fascinating. 
Yeah, yeah, there's just so much in here. And of course, there is something for the value of uh, surprising people. Um, as you mentioned in the notes, Chris, um, Fisher was a lot more unpredictable with uh, with openings than, than Spassky was. Um, trotted out in English, a pirk, um, so... Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you can strain and come up with some chess improvement stuff, but mainly, um, it's just an enjoyable book, and especially if you don't know much about this match, you, you'll learn so much. Um, which brings us to quibbles, which uh, we've talked about a little. Um, we we've kind of hit on them, um, but Chris, anything to add in terms of uh, quibbles with uh, with Bobby Fisher goes to war. Yeah, there's there's a couple. Um, and it's it's funny that you mentioned Edward Winter earlier, because I realized when I was reading this book, that the first time or a couple of times or whatever it was that I read this book was before I was as familiar with Edward Winter as I am now. Now, when I read a book, I kind of try and put myself in his shoes and ask myself, what would his take on this be? And there were a couple of things that I that I found very quibble worthy as a result. Um, there's a lot of amateur psychology in this book. Um, for example, uh, on one of the early pages on page 23, there's a quote about humans often feeling uncomfortable in open complex positions because a part of them feels dread about the unknown. And to me, that's just nonsense. One of the other things that happens in this book that annoys me is they quote George Steiner uh, quite a bit as though he's some sort of authority on psychology. And in reality, Steiner, who did write an r- interesting book about the match called Fields of Force, which also doesn't really contain any chess, um, he's educated in literature. He's not a psychologist. Um, there was also a very common misconception about Paul Morphy dying in a bathtub surrounded by women's shoes. It's completely debunked, so that one annoyed me. And for some reason, the one that annoyed me the most was... Uh, they give a quote by Miguel Nidorf to start the second chapter. And the way that they give the quote is Fisher wants to enter history alone. The actual quote is Fisher prefers to enter chess history alone. And that might seem like a really small quibble, but with things like that that are so easy to research, it always makes me nervous about what else they might have missed. Now, having said all those things as quibbles, I I do want to emphasize, I find those to be very minor quibbles and I don't think they missed much about the actual match itself. Primarily if for no other reason than the fact that you mentioned that they talked to just about everyone. I mean, they interviewed everyone who was involved with this match with the exception of Fisher that was still alive when they were writing it. So I don't think they missed anything major, but those, those were some minor, minor uh, disagreements that I had. Yeah, and, and I don't. I don't have much to add. Um, I, I think you raised some good points. Um, and as we mentioned earlier, there probably is a bit too much background. They could have trimmed the fat by maybe you know ten to fifteen percent, something like that. I think would be a, optimal in my mind. But that's you know that's always going to come down to personal taste. Um, I personally would give the book like an A minus to B plus, something like that. So well worth reading in any event. I did want to just shine a light one more time on what people say about there being not no games because if you look up if you look for sort of prominent reviews of this book you can still as a New York Times subscriber at least I can find um the review from when the book was published um from the New York Times and Gabriel Schoenfeld uh you know says mostly positive things about the book but then in quotes he says but there are glaring weaknesses too reading a book about a chess match that discusses the games at length without providing the providing the actual sequence of moves is like attending a banquet where the most delicious recipes are discussed yet not a bite of food is served 
Um, so that's certainly an opinion that's out there. I personally, as I mentioned earlier, I don't completely agree because um, I don't, you know, that that review like this, like that book is now 15 years old. But I don't feel like we're in an era anymore where we need like one stop shopping. You know, if again, if I want to see the games, I just can call up the games and play through them as they're describing them in prose. Um, and if I want Grandmaster annotations on top of that, there's plenty places to find that. Um, so, yeah, I don't have a ton of quibbles with the book. Just you should know, know what you're getting into in terms of um, that there's no chess games into it. Um, okay. Uh, anything to add, Chris? I think we actually are doing reason. We we came in about on time and hitting all the points. What? How? How can we tie this up? Well, uh, I would like to say I agree with you. I really think this book is probably a solid A minus. Um, I I think that everybody should do themselves a favor. If you're not really familiar with this time in chess history, go read this book or others like it. Yeah, yeah. And this doesn't have to be the only one. There are certainly other ones we could have chosen. Um, but I mean, these guys did their homework. Um, you you could certainly do worse. A uh, couple of things to mention before Chris gets out of here and we get on to the blindfold chess problem. Number one, I can't promise yet that I'll always do this. But I do already know what next month's Perpetual Chess Recaptured will be. Um, we're going to go back to chess improvement. So again, if, if this wasn't your thing, please politely tell me. Um, or if you liked it, that's good to know too. But next month, we'll be, go- we'll be kind of tying some history and chess improvement because I will be discussing Think Like a Grandmaster with cognitive psychologist and friend uh, and friend and former guest of the show, Christopher Chabri. Um, I'm excited for that one. So if anyone wants to read along, feel free to do so. And Chris, what are you doing with the uh, vast sum of money that I'm going to ship your way? Well, I think that uh, I think I found a really good place for that money to go to, Ben. Um, I know that U.S. Chess has been trying to do quite a bit to encourage more girls and women to either stay in the game or get involved in the game. So I'd really like to see that money go to the U.S. Chess Women and Girls Initiative. Um, I know your good friend and, and childhood f- friend and former competitor Jennifer Shahade runs that. Um, I also have something of a connection with Jen because I've written for her on Chess Life Online a bunch of times. So I know she's doing a really good job with that initiative. And I'd like to see them do everything they can to see their mission become a success. Awesome. Yeah. And so generous. So great that that we're able to to do some good for the chess world on top of, um, you know, uh, recapping a book. So, Chris, awesome job as expected. Um, Where how can people keep up with you? in if as they should they choose to do so um if you can't find me online you're not trying very hard Uh um you can literally just google my name and the word chess and you'll find everything you'd like to but probably twitter is just the best way um i'm on chess twitter all over the place i'm on facebook um so feel free to get in contact with me if you'd like to yell at me for anything or or say anything about anything i've said today Okay, excellent. Well, thanks again, Chris. Great job. And I'll let you hang up before I get to these blindfold chess problems that I forgot to triple check and I hope are right. (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks, Ben.
All right, guys, this month's blindfold puzzles are Bobby Fischer themed. I actually took them from his games. It's possible you'll even recognize them, but I think they're pretty decent blindfold puzzles. The first one is not super hard, but there's a few more pieces on the board than you might be used to. So I think the most challenging part may be keeping the whole picture in your head. It is black to move and win. And I will give you the piece placement now or in a second. As always, in the show notes, if you click on the first diagram listed below the position, you'll be able to see the position without the answer. And if you click on the second diagram, you will see the actual answer. So without further ado, here is puzzle number one, black to move and win. First, I'll give the white pieces. White has pawns on H2, G2, D5, and A2. White also has a rook on f1, the king on h1, the white queen on d7, and a bishop on a3. So that's it for the white pieces. I'll give it again. White has pawns on h2, g2, d5, and a2. White's rook is on f1, white's king is on h1, white's queen is on d7, and white's bishop is on a3. As for black in this position, they have pawns on h7, g7, f7, and d6. The black king is on g8, black bishop on f8, black rook on e8, black queen on d4. So once again, that's pawns on h7, g7, and f7. The black pawn is on d6 also, black king on g8, black bishop on f8, black rook on e8, black queen on d4, and it is black to move and win. It is not a lot of moves. I'd say about a 1600 level puzzle. The next one I think might be moderately harder. There's fewer pieces, but it's a mate in four, and only finding the checkmate counts. So in this one, I will say the white pieces first. White's pawns are on h2, g3, f2, and e3. So dark squared constellation, white king on e2, white queen on f3. That's it for white. Pawns h2, g3, f2, and e3, white king on e2, white queen on f3. Black, on the other hand, has pawns on g7 and f7. The king is on g8, black's queen is on c3, and black's bishop is on b3. So black to move and checkmate that king It's right there in the middle of the board, but you got to find the mating sequence. So that's it for this month. I hope you guys enjoyed the show and I will catch you guys soon. Thanks as always to my producer, Matthew Passy, for making Perpetual Chess happen. I also want to thank all you guys and girls who helped me grow Perpetual Chess. That includes everyone who tells a friend about the show, everyone who writes a positive review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, whatever other podcast platform you may be on all of it is appreciated and all of it keeps me going but of course most of all i want to thank the people who provide financial support to the show i would like to give extra special thanks to the following people and entities they are chessable quality chess books the capital city chess club the apprentice twitch channel andrew bach austin clough benjamin porto kathy carr chad oliver Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Natel, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Cromarty, John McCarthy, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, 
Lone Pine Chess, Lorraine Dore, Lucio Casada Silva, the law offices of Stuart Katz, Michael Kahn, FM Michael Oplin, Mike Zelazny, Moonmaster 9000, Peter Sodi, Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of Strong Chess, and Todd Kennedy. And I would also like to thank the following people and entities. They are Aaron Waffler, Ace Fayega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, FM Andre Terakov, Andrew Perry, Better Chess Training, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Flanagan, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Day's Chess Academy, Courtney Fry, Daniel Gell, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Lucas of U.S. Chess Federation, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Cramley, CEO of Chessable.com, Dalen Shelton, Dwayne Edmonds, Ethan Smith, I am Elect Donnie Ariel, the Fox Valley Chess Club of Aurora, Illinois, Dr. Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Geert Vandervelt, Gerard Barta, Giovanni Russo, Hans Schut, Harish Srinivasan, James Aspinwall, James Benastia, James Moore, Jason Anfang, Jason Woolham, J. Deep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeffrey Martello, Jerry Wells, J.J. Stranod, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jordan Goodwin, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, GM Josh Friedel, I am Kare Christensen, WGM Katerina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, I am Kostya Kovutsky, Krishna Kapala Krishnan, Larry Ryforth, Laura Belyavsky, Martin Knudsen, Matthew Passi, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, the Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Miguel Araspidi, Mike Clem, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Nate Salon, Neil Bruce, Olaf Mueller Michaels, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passi Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Swainy, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwalder, WGM, Tatia Vabrahamian, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomas Komonich, Tony Rotella, Tyrin Price, Victor Vrinkulj, Wayne Beam, William Brock, William Juniper, William Peterson, FM Zhao Chang of Chess1000.com, Zhivko Stoyanov, and that is everyone. Thanks, everyone. Catch you guys next week. Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.